Okay, for those of you who are familiar with our practice and protocol, we usually stand and read the Word of God. So why don't we just stand and read Romans 1.16, and then we can be seated. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Please be seated. Well, good morning, and uh, you'll remember that last week we began a new sermon series. A new se sermon series titled, What is the Gospel? Now, before we dive into the, today's message, I want to remind you of last week's service and what we covered to refresh uh, those years of those who were here and maybe to help those who weren't here learn what we talked about. But really, the gospel in Christianity is referred to as the word, uh, or is referred to the good news, the good news. So in the, the New Testament was written in Greek, and it was written in Greek because that was the predominant language of the day when Alexander the Great conquered the the world back in around 300 BC, he changed the entire culture to a Greek culture, and it spread throughout Rome, and so by the time Jesus gets into power, and the Bible is written, everyone speaks the Greek language, and so we do our best as pastors and Christians to translate from the original Greek into English. So the word gospel really means the good news, um, the word Greek word euangelion. So we spoke about this, and then talked about three important truths to take away from that word. Number one was that in the book of Ephesians, when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesus church, in chapter 3, he called the gospel the endless treasures, the unfathomable riches of Christ. So we talk a lot about this. Like we say, we need to share the gospel. We need to tell people about the good news. Well, Paul makes it pretty clear. That, big, that good news is pretty darn big. <laughs> it's unfathomable, really, to think about it. And it's endless in its riches. It's endless in its riches. And so we have this dichotomy then because at the same time we're told to proclaim the gospel. We're told to teach it. So in one sense it's, it's unfathomable how good it is and so big. But, but we're also told to teach about it. So we have this dichotomy. And so one thing we learned from Jesus in Mark 1.14 was that although this gospel does center on the cross... And that is absolutely crucial to the gospel message. There's no gospel without the cross. When Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, it's interesting that in the first two, three years of his ministry, it was a crossless gospel. The gospel was the culmination, but when he said, repent and believe, he was actually teaching people about other things regarding this Christian faith that they were to believe in. And that's why it's unfathomable, because you think about everything he said in three years, He's got the cross plus all this extra stuff about how good it is to go God's way and to live for Him. And so when we took the biggest thing though, not the biggest thing, but the third thing we took away from that was the idea that the gospel was to be public. Public news with public implications. And so remember what we learned last week was that the gospel wasn't, wasn't originally a Christian word, if you will. We might think, well, Christianity invented the gospel. No, it didn't. Caesar had his own gospel in Rome. And you remember that. When, when they would, the people would come in on foot or horse, and they wanted to announce a victory to a town or village, they would say, the gospel of Caesar. 
the good news of Caesar. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's your King. You're to be allegiant to him because he secured victory in the Mediterranean known world at that time. And so he needs to be worshipped. And so statues and, t- and all sorts of shrines were built to worship and honor Caesar. And in certain cities, to not worship Caesar was a death penalty. Or if you worshipped another, if you worshipped Jesus and, and claimed him Lord as opposed to Caesar, it was a death penalty. Now this was not true in every Roman town, but in the most severe and sort of hard-pressed towns, that's, that was the reality. And so when Jesus comes along and says, repent, for the gospel is here, the people in the first century go, oh my goodness, I know exactly what's going on here. This is good news. God's going to announce something big. And Jesus says, repent, because your Lord, your true Lord and your Savior is here. As opposed to Caesar as Lord and Savior. So this is the background of where we've come in one week. So today's message then is something I was actually planning to do at the end of the sermon series at the end of summer. And the reason I was going to do it at the end is I wanted to preach to you maybe six to eight weeks about the gospel and then put everything together and say, now here's how you preach the gospel or teach the gospel to other people. Well, I was talking to Jeff and he said to me while we're changing my van tires, he said, uh, hey, do you think it would be a good idea to ever have uh, an example right away in a sermon about what the gospel is and how to share it? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, wouldn't it be good up front to have that kind of message so that people know, like, sort of where we're headed and what we're doing? And I thought, you know what? That's a good idea. Instead of doing it at the end of the series, we'll do it at the beginning. And so today, we're going to just do the basic, what I call the clothesline. The clothesline. And everything I teach you from here on in, you take that little peg with a t-shirt in your underwear, and you hang it off the clothesline. Every piece, every sermon of the servant now is a, is, a, is a peg to hang off the clothesline of what we're learning today. And as you learn this, you will then make, your gospel will become more unfathomable, more rich. And then after eight weeks, I'm only going to touch the surface. And so week after week and month after month and year after year, you're going to be like, oh man, I got another clothes, piece of clothing to put on my clothesline. And it's going to get better and better. And there's more and more for you. And so there's an advantage, I think, and Jeff was wise in this, to do it now at the beginning. And then we can add more to the end. But I want to show, give a shout out to one more person I'm grateful to in this church. And that's uh, Esther. She's probably surprised to hear her name this morning. But three weeks ago or so, she invited me to a trade show in Okotoks. Uh, many of you might have been to it, the trade show that was at the... Uh, the rec center, and I remember going there thinking, man, there's a big hockey tournament going on here because <laughs> I've never seen the parking lot so busy. Well, it was communities and, and businesses and so on gathering together to advertise their products. Well, Esther invited me to meet some individuals from a group called the Fellowship of Christian Farmers in Canada. And they had a booth set up amongst the businesses, and as you walked by them, they would, they would invite you to their booth and they would share the good news and the gospel message with people. So I got to go and meet these people, and, um, and then they actually found out what I did for a living and put me to work. <laughs> so I spent a total of probably, I don't know, maybe two hours in total over the two days just sort of joining them in this uh, ministry. But I walked away from it realizing some pretty important truths and some really big things. 
And uh, I actually want to share with you this morning my experience and teach you the way I believe is actually very um, powerful in the way to proclaim the gospel message. The, just to give you a quick history about these guys, though, the Fellowship of Christian Farmers Canada was a branch off of an organization that began in San Antonio, Texas in 1985. And there's actually a soybean expo taking place in 85. And a group of farmers got together to discuss the need for an organized Christian fellowship for the farming industry. They, I mean, farming is not easy. Farming is not easy. It comes with stress and burdens. And they wanted to provide an opportunity to come alongside other farmers to share in their burdens and pray with them and to, and to strengthen them in their faith. So the first meeting in 85 had 26 people, even though it was an American-wide um, uh, expo, but it grew to thousands and eventually came into Canada in year 2000. And so they've been growing and expanding and they go across Canada setting up booths at different trade shows and sharing the gospel. But what was unique about the way they did it was they used colors. Colors to represent different aspects of gospel truths. Now I went and looked up, after I experienced that, I came home and I told Janice about it, I told Roger Duick about it, and, and, and they said, actually, Andrew, like, you know, people have been doing that for like a long time, that's not totally unique to them. And I'm like, oh, really? I mean, I'm only a Christian for about 18 years, right? So I'm like behind the years uh, in a lot of ways. Many of you are going, well, done. You're like, I learned that in Sunday school. But, uh, but anyway, it was new to me, and I was like, this is amazing. And I thought, well, if I'm a pastor and I'm learning this stuff, there's no way everybody in the congregation knows this either. Especially the way we think we're going to do this morning. So what's cool is I go back and I look it up, and sure enough, in 1860, in 1860, um, Charles Spurgeon was using colors to articulate truths. He only used three colors, and we've got five this morning. Um, Dwight Moody, another fellow that you might recognize that name, used colors. A, name, a woman named Fanny Crosby, I don't think any relation to Sidney Crosby, um, used the colors when telling the story of the gospel to children. And so the, unique, the Fellowship of Christian Farmers have made it their own thing as well and made it unique in the way they do it. And so we are going to begin this morning then uh, by looking at this. But I want to ask you three questions. And I'm pretty sure I know the answer. And every single one of you has to participate. You can't, you know when, I hate it when sometimes when I'm in the audience and people ask questions, I'm like, oh, here we go, like, you know, kind of like this with my hands and whatever. But like, seriously, like, this is, a, we're friends and family here. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you are scared to share truth with people? If you were to ask the book, the gospel, how many of you are scared on the streets to do it? Okay, good majority. Not everyone, but majority. Perfect. How many of you, if you wanted to share your faith, like I'm not, I'm sort of not totally sure if I'm scared. I want to, but I'm just so unsure about what to say, and I have no succinct way of saying it. How many people think they'd be tongue-tied and struggle to proclaim things in an organized way? Perfect. How many of you think, though, that we're scared would share it more often if you are confident in what you would say and the way you'd say it? Perfect. Yeah, me too. So, as someone who's supposedly got this figured out, I'm in the exact same boat as you. I don't always know what to say and how to say it, and 
and, um, and what ways to go. And sure, you, I mean, there's two aspects of it, right? There's the relying on the Holy Spirit to give you words in the moment, which in times he does. But I'll be honest with you, there are times I have been absolutely blank. I'm like, God, give me the words and nothing comes. And so what am I left with? I'm left with that which I already have learned and that which I know. And that which is cemented in my brain. And then God can start using things as I proclaim those things. So I think it's wrong to go in. I've got this figured out. I'm going to just have this memorized and go for it. That doesn't leave room for the Lord. But the other wrong, the other wrong thing to do is say, well, I'm only going to rely on the Lord and he's going to give me anything to say because trust me that there are times that he's not going to. So you've got to have to help walk this healthy balance. And if I feel that struggle, thankfully you were honest and you feel it too. Okay, so let's get into this. The gospel in living color. Gold represents God's purpose or God's plan. Black, sin, red, Jesus' blood or Christ's sacrifice. White, restoration or forgiveness, relationship. Green, growth in Christ. Now, every person I've looked up, they have their own wording for these uh, colors. And um, these, are my, these are just my personal choices because of the way I'm wired and the way it helps me memorize things. If you want to change these titles, change these titles. All that matters is that you understand what you want to say. So in the Christian Farmers Fellowship Association, gold is heaven. But for me, heaven didn't just quite sit and work with me totally based on my understanding of God and, and, his, and my theology. It's not wrong, but it wasn't enough. So I, want, I called it God's purpose. And so you get the idea about these things. So you can change the colors. Not change the colors. I'd probably recommend keeping the colors. Change the titles. And then you can also change the scriptures that go along with them as you like. So let's walk through this. Uh, panel by panel. If you would like this PowerPoint, you don't want to take notes, I will send you the PowerPoint. You can have everything I've written and it will cost you $10. No, I'm just kidding. It'll be a... <laughs> It'll cost you your life for the Lord. <laughs> your commitment to Him. All right, so let's uh, let's move on. So, gold, God's purpose. Here's basically the Christian worldview, in, in, which is in, in um, what we believe as a church, as followers of Jesus. <laughs> we believe that God created us. God created us in His image. We are a unique creation to Him. God then, as, our, as the creation, as the creator, he desires a relationship with you and I. Now, he wants a relationship with you and I now. Not just for eternity, so for heaven, if you will. He wants a relationship with you now and in eternity. Because, and again, in the Christian understanding, we, we have eternal life. People live beyond the grave. It's, we don't cease to exist beyond the grave. The Bible makes that very clear. So he wants a relationship with you and I now and for eternity. What scriptures support this? John 10.10, which speaks to, the, to a lot of the now. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. For the future, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And again, speaking to the future, Corinthians says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. 
So we have this relational God, that God's plan for every human being is to be in relationship with them, to know them now, and to know them in eternity. But then there's a big problem. There's a big problem. We all have sinned against holy, a holy God. Just the ten, take the Ten Commandments alone. We've broken them all. Pretty much all of them. Anyone here taking the Lord's name in vain? Broken the commandment. Anyone ever told a lie? Broken the commandment. Anyone stolen anything? Broken the commandment. Anyone coveted anything? Broken the commandment. Right? I mean, it's just, it goes on and on and on. Right? So we've, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, according to Romans 3.23. Ecclesiastes says, Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. And so the result in Romans 6.23 is the wages of sin is death. And death in the Bible is twofold. It's spiritual death and physical death. And they both happen. So you ever wonder why we die? It's because of sin. Ever wonder why... Um, there be separation from God now and eternity would because of sin. But now God's on the hook because He's the Creator and He created humanity to be in relationship with them. So if you create someone to be in relationship with you, but there's sin in the picture, you've got to fix it. You've got to bridge the gap. And God in His love does something massive to restore their relationship and make it an opportunity for fellowship again. He sends Jesus Christ to the earth to die on the cross for our sins. So God in his love provides a way for our sins to be forgiven. Jesus Christ pays the penalty for our sins. So the taking the Lord's name in vain, the lying, that's put on his back. And when he dies on the cross, he's dying in our place as a substitute for what we have done. God's providing a way for the relationship to be restored. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God. John 1.7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So again, we have a relational God for now and the future. We've got sin in our lives, and for all honest, we've all broken the commandments. And if we all looked in the mirror we, and we're honest with ourselves, we know that we fall short of God's glory. But God loves us and provides a way through the cross. So up to this point, is God doing everything. God's doing everything to restore. But now we come to a place where he requires a response. A response. The response in the Bible is called faith. Our faith. God does not force himself on anyone. He doesn't force himself on anyone, but his arms are open wide to receive people back into relationship. And so, in 1 John 1, 9, he says, let me help you understand what faith is in the beginning. It's not just an intellectual assent. It requires you to do something. He says, if you believe this message that you've sinned against the Holy God, there's separation, but Christ has paved the way for a relationship, if you confess your sins, you confess them. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from our unrighteousness. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Now let me help you understand what confession is. If I, uh, 
Well, I'll just click on Alicia. You're right in front of me. So, Alicia, you and I are friends, and uh, I'm at Kelly's house, and uh, I'm talking to Kelly, and I don't hear you walk in the door, but I'm gossiping about you behind your back, about how terrible of a person you are because you let me down because of this and that and the other. You walk in and you hear that. You're just going to, like, you'll be destroyed because you thought we were close. Right? And you might even be mad at Kelly for accepting the facts of the things I'm saying. If I just walk up to you and said, hey, Alicia, I'm sorry, and walked away, you might, you, be consider, you might consider the sincerity of my apology. Because what you would probably want to hear is, sorry for what? So just to go up to you and say, I'm sorry, won't cut it. But if I said, can I just talk to you privately? And I said, listen, I know you walked in and you heard me say this, and you heard me say this, and you heard me say that. I am deeply sorry for the things I said. They were wrong, and would you forgive me? The chances of that going over and being received are way greater. Because I took responsibility and onus for what I did. So when Christianity, when people talk about the forgiveness that we get in Christ, when people say, well, just ask God to forgive you, and so you go, God, forgive me for doing this, and you move on, that's like what I call cheap. As a human being, you wouldn't even accept that of yourself. But if you go before a holy God and you say, listen, I know that I've done this, I know I've done that, and you lay it out with no excuse, no excuses. You lay it out before him and say, these are the things that I'm naming, and I, and I know that you died in my place for it. God says, that's confession, that's sincere, and your heart is right before me. That's the difference between confession and just saying, I'm sorry. We own everything that we do. And that's what the Lord's looking for. And so I, I talked about confession in the ABCDs in the last bullet point here. How do we respond? But really, you back up a little bit. A, you acknowledge there's a God that created you. You acknowledge you sinned against Him, but you acknowledge that He has, wants a relationship. You believe that He did something for you. He sent Christ to die for your sins so that you could be restored. Then you confess your sins, you name the things that you know He put them on the cross. And then in service, out of love for, his, his love for you and service to Him, you love Him back by dedicating your life to Him. And that's where the Bible comes in. Because in here is His instruction manual for how to live your Christian life out. And so this is what, this is really up to this point, the gospel message. And when we do this, we are restored back into relationship with the living God. We're restored. But the Lord doesn't want us to forgive us and leave us there. He wants to see us grow. He wants to see us grow. He wants more than just to forgive you. He wants to know you personally and grow in a relationship with Him. So 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So don't just receive the forgiveness, but grow now. Like a seed planted, to put water on it and turn it into a, a tree or a plant. Colossians 1.10, live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. And so this is where the scriptures come in, the Bible, this is where prayer comes in. And the Christian community, as we spur one another on and help each other. Back to the Christian Farmers Fellowship, what did they do? They, they started a community at agricultural meetings to help share the burdens of other farmers who were really getting beaten down with how hard life and work could be in that industry. The Christian community is to do the same, we're to come around one another and support one another when we're burdened and beaten down through life's trials and, 
and difficulties. So this is the this is the Christian message. This is the gospel at the close. This is the close line of the gospel message. But you can see there's even in this the basic nuts and bolts. There's more than just the forgiveness of sin here, isn't there? Already there's more than that. It's so good. It's good news. Forgiveness and restoration is just the, the, is like almost like the pinnacle of it. But it's much more than that. So, just for fun, I took one verse from each of the five colors and put it together to hear how the Bible would speak about the gospel for itself. And this is kind of really, this is really simple and really, really profound. So all these verses you've already read, but watch how this fits together. The gospel made simple. Let's go from the beginning, without the colors there. No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But there's a problem. Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. So how can we inherit then what has been prepared for us? As a result... The wages of sin is death. However, there's hope. God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God. This requires a decision on our part. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. As a love expression, then, we honor Jesus with our life. Live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. It's important that we proclaim and preach these truths. Because God's word, this gospel message contains power to transform lives. It's not just words on a page. There's actually power in the words that we read and hear. So back to our opening verse, Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ, Paul says. It is the power of God at work. Saving everyone who believes, the Jew the first and the, also the Gentile. Okay, so it's power. There's power in the words. Paul continues to say this in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. And finally in chapter 2, and my message and my preaching were very plain, Paul says, rather than using clever and persuasive speeches like the philosophers of the day, like Plato and Aristotle, Aristotle and these guys, I relied, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. And this is why this is important. When we preach this, it can transform lives. It can transform lives. In Peter's preaching of the gospel, he, he, he stands up after Christ is crucified and he says to the Jews in this sermon, the following, fellow Israelites, listen to this message. Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes on to talk about everything that happened to him and their responsibility in the crucifixion of Jesus. Fast forward 35 verses. When the people heard this message, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and other people, other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter and Paul didn't have clever words and weren't philosophers and seeking for the logic. They preached Christ crucified 
or sin, the sinful message, the power of God and the Holy Spirit worked in the hearts of the listeners and they were cut to the heart because of what they were hearing. So when we proclaim the word of God, that is what the Holy Spirit uses to, to, to speak to people's lives. So if we start speaking something else other than those other than his message, there's nothing for really God to sort of work with to the same degree, right? And so this is really important because if something other than the gospel is preached, then something else other than salvation will occur. It's the power of God to save. So we're not creating a new message, we're getting in line with what God has already said. Our content is way more important than our delivery. The Holy Spirit can make use, make, even if we're all fumbled and mumbled, He can make sense of it. God can use, still use that. So we don't have to be all this, we have to be this clever and whatnot. We just have to preach the simplistic message and its content. Father, we give you thanks for the morning and uh, thank you that you make truth so simple, and yet we often complicate it. Lord, help us to work through this and to own this for ourselves. And um, here's the good thing too, you've given us community, and so as we personally work this out in our own lives, we can then you know, bounce this with, off of other people, and maybe practice with our friends and close family, and we can ask for feedback and help as we go through all this, Lord. But we know that this is a Holy Spirit-driven thing, and so we do ask you to be with us and to guide us through this whole process. Thank you for your love and, your, and the truth of the gospel and how good the good news actually is and how it's available to everyone if they receive you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.